Please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. We've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, and today we find ourselves in chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. Dr. Luke has composed this gospel, uh, an orderly account, a carefully and diligently researched record of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, in order that his reader, Theophilus, might have certainty concerning the things that he's been taught. Uh, And that account starts off with uh, two different narratives, two different birth announcements here. In chapter 1, right, first we saw verses 5 through 25, uh, the angel Gabriel appearing to a priest named Zechariah, telling him that his barren wife Elizabeth uh, would bear a son in her old age, and that this son, John, would then go and be the forerunner to the Messiah. He will turn many of the children to is many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Then in verses twenty six through thirty eight, we have the same angel Gabriel now appearing to a young virgin named Mary, uh, telling her that she would bear a son by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that this child, Jesus, would be the incarnate Son of God. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end." And if you were here when we covered those verses, right, you'll remember how Luke intentionally sets up these two birth announcements in a parallel fashion, right, drawing our attention to the many similarities between how these two accounts are presented. Both accounts start with the parents being introduced, and both are introduced in a way that shows why they can't be pregnant, right? Elizabeth was very old and barren. And Mary was a not-yet-married virgin. Then in both accounts, the angel Gabriel appears, and he tells the person not to be afraid. And then he promises that they would conceive a son, and he prophesies about that son's unique greatness. And then in both, the recipient of the angelic message then asks a question, and Gabriel gives a sign in response. Right, Many, many, many similarities, but so far these two storylines, right, the announcement of John's birth and the announcement of Jesus' birth, those two storylines, as similar as they are, they've been completely separate. Right? The two stories have been geographically separate. Uh, one story happens in the temple in Jerusalem and in the nearby hill country of Judah where Zechariah and Elizabeth live, where all that's taking place in the southern part of Israel. But Mary's from the northern part, right? She's from uh, Nazareth and Galilee. Uh, that angelic visit takes place in the northern part of Israel. And so they're geographically separate. They're also temporally separate, right? The two angelic visits happen six months apart from one another. But now in our text for this morning, we are going to see these two threads intertwine. We're going to see these two storylines come together, uh, both in a spatio-temporal sense. And I've always wanted to say the word spatio-temporal in a sermon, so there you go. Uh, But also in the sense of the initial stages of prophetic fulfillment happening as the two mothers with their babies now meet. 
And so our plan for this morning is to cover Luke 1, uh, verses 39 to 56, right? This block of text that covers both uh, Mary and Elizabeth's meeting uh, and then also Mary's response. But as much as I tried to squeeze this all into one sermon, we're just not going to have time uh, to cover both the meeting and the song. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to cover the meeting. We're going to make some general remarks, general comments about Mary's song. And then next week, we're going to dive into uh, the truths contained in the verses of the Magnificat. And so let me read our text, uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. And then we're going to talk about what it means And then we're going to talk about how we can apply the Word of God to our lives. So look along in your own Bibles, Luke chapter 1, verses 39 and following. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So remember, in the section right before this, Mary receives a visit from the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel tells her what has to be the most incredible thing ever told to a human being. And look at verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born, right, the child that's going to be born to you, an unmarried virgin, will be called Holy, the Son of God. Surely, She's got a million questions running through her mind. We might be just too familiar with the idea of of the virgin birth uh, and the hypostatic union that this can get lost on us. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Nothing like this has ever happened since. This is a singular and unique event in human history. Uh, Surely, Mary would have had a ton of questions. But she takes God at his word. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. God is her master. She acknowledges that she's but a lowly slave. And if that's the plan of an all-wise and sovereign God, well, she trusts him. She truly believes that nothing will be impossible with God. 
But even given her trust in God, her submission to God's plan, God still kindly gives her a sign. She didn't ask for one. But God, through the angel Gabriel, graciously gives her one anyway. Look at verse 36. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So here's a sign that's going to serve to further strengthen your own faith. Your old, barren relative, Elizabeth, well, she's also miraculously with child. So Mary wastes no time. Uh, She just hustles right over there. Look at how verse 39 tells us that she went with haste into the hill country. When an angel tells you something that amazing, and then he gives you a sign to confirm and strengthen your faith, we're well, not just going to sit around for like a few months, kind of see what happens. Got a busy next couple of weeks. Like maybe I can squeeze in a visit at the end of the month, but you know, I got that birthday party, so maybe I'll go after that. No, this is like a drop everything that you're doing and go with haste kind of urgency to all of this. And the math checks out told that there would be no math, but just follow me here. Look at verse 36. This is the sixth month with her who is called barren, right? So Elizabeth is six months pregnant when Gabriel makes this announcement to Mary. Well, Mary wastes no time. She heads right over to Elizabeth. Now look at verse 56. Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Verse 57, now the time came from Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, referring to John. And so six plus three is nine, right? And so presumably, Mary went home right before Elizabeth gave birth to John after nine months of pregnancy. Just a little, there you go, a little math to start off the new year. And one thing that might not immediately occur to us, though, as we read this, right, we're not too familiar with the geography of Israel Uh, This is quite the trek. This is quite a journey here. Uh, From Nazareth, where Mary's home was, all the way up in the north, to the hill country of Judah. Now, we don't know exactly where that is, the the pinpoint location, but we have a a general idea of the vicinity. That's probably like 80 miles. Went on a a two-and-a-half-mile hike recently, uh, and I was done, right? My my feet were sore for days. Uh, Here she is, a teenage girl, traveling 80 miles to make this visit. It's like a four-day journey. But you can imagine just this, this whole time flying by, the distance just flying by because of Mary's excitement. Like if there's anybody on planet Earth with whom she can talk about everything that's just happened to her, well, it's going to be this other woman who's also going through a miraculous, a God-given, uh, angel-revealed pregnancy. At the same time, we also have a lot of questions. Like, who'd she go with? Surely she did not, as a teenage girl, make this trip by herself. Uh, was she planning from the beginning to stay for three months? Uh, did she pack a lot? Uh, what did her parents think about all this? Right, we, we don't have any of those answers. All we do know is that she arrived safely. Look at verse 40. She arrives at the house of Zechariah. Now remember, Zechariah can't talk. Right? He has been made mute. Uh, we don't even know if he's home at this time. Even if he was, what's he going to say? He can't say anything. He's just going to wave. He's going to give a nod, whatever it might be. But forget Zechariah. Right? More important for our narrative, Mary greets Elizabeth. Pregnant Mary greets 
pregnant Elizabeth. Mary's like, you'll never believe what the angel Gabriel told me. And Elizabeth's pointing to Mary like, you know, you'll never believe what the angel Gabriel told to me. And it's like the meme with the two Spider-Mans that are pointing at each other. But now look at verse 41 and 42. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaims to Mary, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed are you among women. That's a, that's a Hebrew expression. Uh, you see something similar said about Jael in Judges chapter 5 in the Old Testament after she kills Sisera. Right? Blessed are you among women. Elizabeth is simply pointing to the unique blessing that is upon Mary. But just to reiterate something that we covered a few weeks ago, it's not because Mary herself is a source of grace or because Mary is sinless or because Mary is the Redeemer. No, she is blessed because of her unique role as the one to carry the Messiah in her womb. Right? Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Right? That's why you're blessed, because of the Jesus that is to be born from you. Look at also to verse 45. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so again, Mary is blessed, not because of her intrinsic worthiness or her holiness or her value, but because of what God is doing in and through her in terms of her faith and her trust in him, and because God is the one who is proven to be faithful through the fulfillment of his word. But now remember, this outburst from Elizabeth, it happens verse 41, as soon as she hears Mary's greeting. Now, this is where we got to do a little bit of thinking here. Remember, the angel Gabriel tells Mary about Elizabeth when he visits with Mary, but he does not tell Elizabeth anything about Mary. And so if Mary hasn't had time to kind of explain everything that's happened before Elizabeth says all of this, then naturally we have to wonder, how does she know How does she know everything that has been happening with Mary? Well, the answer is back at the end of verse 41. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit grants her a supernatural understanding of the situation so that she can respond rightly with joy. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because the fruit of the Spirit is joy. One thing I think that's interesting about Elizabeth's reaction here, right, as we notice her unmitigated joy at her relative's pregnancy, there doesn't seem to be a hint of a trace of a smidgen of jealousy. Because we might think that she would feel, I don't know, a little bit upstaged, like outdone, overshadowed. Decades and decades of childlessness, the angel Gabriel comes and tells me that I'm going to have this miraculous pregnancy and that my child is going to be great. But now, an even more miraculous pregnancy comes along and an even greater child is going to be born. But there's not a hint of jealousy anywhere in what Elizabeth says, which again makes sense because Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit And the fruit of the Spirit is not only joy, but it's also love. And love does not envy. And we see in Elizabeth a heart that truly rejoices with those who rejoice. But even more than that, 
but even greater than her joy for her relative, even greater than her rejoicing with those who rejoice, is her joy that God's redemptive plan is really unfolding before her very eyes. Like salvation is here. Her son's going to be the forerunner. And now the son of her young relative Mary is going to be the Messiah, the savior of the world, the Lord, right? And not just the Lord, but look at the text, her Lord. Verse 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That's an amazing statement. Uh, Not only is that a statement ringing with humility, right? Just like this right sense of her own unworthiness. But consider also the theological significance of what she is saying here. This is the mother of my Lord. If you think about it, this is the first time since his incarnation that Jesus is called Lord. He hasn't been born yet, right? He's still in the womb of his mother. He hasn't done anything yet as a human being. And yet he is Lord because he has always existed as God. We said it this morning in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Jesus has always been Lord. Elizabeth is simply the first person to explicitly proclaim it. And you remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Well, Elizabeth here is the first person to say Jesus is Lord. And not surprisingly, she does it in the power and under the influence of the Holy Spirit. But you notice that Elizabeth is not alone in her rejoicing here. She's not alone in her celebration of the Messiah. Look at verse 41. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. I said, well, it's not that uncommon for a baby that far along in a pregnancy to move and kick and all that. But this was not an ordinary move or kick or turn. How do we know that? Because Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, tells us exactly why John jumped in her womb. Verse 44, behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And now we know why Gabriel gives us the extra detail back in verse 15, right? Look back at verse 15. John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Just tell us that he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Like, why give us that specific time frame, that specific starting point from his mother's womb? Well, now we know. It's because even in his mother's womb, the Holy Spirit is at work in John for him to fulfill his ministry. Now, how exactly the Holy Spirit is working in John in terms of like this stage of human development, uh, we don't know. And your guess is as good as mine. But what we do know for sure, what the text clearly tells us, is that John the Baptist, in his mother's womb, is moving in such a way as to somehow express joy that the Savior of the world the Savior for whom he himself would go and be the forerunner was now finally here. Like this kick in his mother's womb is, is the in-the-womb equivalent 
of behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This scene, the, the, the baby John leaping in his mother's womb for joy. Well, friends, this beautifully foreshadows what this man's entire life and ministry were going to be about. Right? Joyfully going before Jesus and pointing everybody to him as the Lamb of God. John 3.29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's John, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Right? Isn't that exactly what John is doing here, even in his mother's womb? Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. Well, that rejoicing starts all the way back here in his mother's womb. And bigger picture, right, this whole narrative, both with John and Elizabeth, well, doesn't it beautifully foreshadow what the Holy Spirit's ministry is going to be about? Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 16 about the Holy Spirit's ministry? He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will glorify me. The Holy Spirit is all about glorifying Christ. And so it only makes sense that Elizabeth and John, both of whom are filled with the Holy Spirit, they're all about making much of Jesus in this narrative. Let me just say one more thing while we're on this text. What I'm about to say is not the point of this text, but it's an undeniable implication of this text. And that's that the baby in the womb is a baby. John is undeniably described here as a human being, as a life. One who leaps for joy. One who is filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. These are things that could only describe a life. Even the vocabulary. Consider that the Greek word that Luke and Elizabeth use here in verses 41 and 45 the baby in the womb, that's the same exact Greek word that's used in chapter 2. Scan your eyes real quick over to chapter 2, verse 12. A baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And so the word used to describe John in the womb here in Luke chapter 1 is the same exact word used to describe the newborn Jesus in chapter 2. So logically, if the baby in the womb is indeed a baby, then of course we must conclude that abortion is nothing less than the taking of a human life. It's murder. Now I point that out for two reasons. One, we as believers, right, we need to have our worldview shaped uh, first and foremost by what the Bible says uh, on this and any other issue. Uh, and so yes, there's, there's many different aspects that can be considered in discussing any issue, but at the end of the day, what the Bible says is what should be of primary importance to any believer. Two is this. Perhaps there is somebody in this room right now who is struggling with this very issue. Perhaps you are even contemplating having an abortion. If that's the case, I beg you not to do that. Because what you have in you right now is a baby. It's one fearfully and wonderfully made, created in the image of God. 
And so if this is something that you yourself are wrestling with right now, please come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to speak with you about this. I'd love to refer you to the Borough Pregnancy Counseling Center, one of this church's missionaries, the counseling that they provide for those who are dealing with unplanned pregnancies. But the implication from this text is undeniable. The baby in the womb is a baby. Back to our text. We see Elizabeth's joy. We see John's joy. Mary, she's like, hey, it's my turn now to express my joy. Her joy is captured for us in verses 46 uh, to 55. And the ESV does something very helpful for us, I think. Uh, Look at how it kind of indents these lines in your Bible so that you know that something different is going on here. Uh, This is not regular prose. This is not regular speech. Uh, This is poetry. This is a song. And so this uh, set of verses is often referred to as Mary's Magnificat. And that just comes from the very first word of the Latin translation of this song. Magnificat, Latin for magnify, as in my soul magnifies the Lord. And it's actually the first of several songs that we're going to look at in the weeks to come. We're going to see Zechariah's Benedictus. Uh, We're going to see Simeon's Nunc Dimittis. Uh, All of those names are just the insipids, right? Just the the, the first words of the Latin translation. Uh, They just sound a lot cooler, right? You sound a lot more educated when you say Magnificat as opposed to Mary's song. So that's why we're going to go with that. Again, we're going to get into the details of what Mary actually says in her Magnificat next time. Uh, But for now, I just want you to notice just generally, right? Look at the song. Just kind of scan your eyes through those verses. Look at how saturated... This song is with Bible, with Old Testament scriptures. Uh, maybe you've heard uh, that it's very similar to Hannah's song from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, I think I mentioned that when we went through 1 Samuel chapter 2. The, the similarities are notable. Uh, I think this would be a really fun exercise for you this afternoon uh, to take out Luke chapter 1, look at the Magnificat, and take out 1 Samuel chapter 2, look at Hannah's song, and just kind of compare them side by side. Just kind of see the similarities in terms of the expressions uh, and the themes and uh, just kind of the imagery in both. But lest you think that, you know, Mary just did her devotions that morning from 1 Samuel chapter 2, just that's what was on her mind, that's why there's so much of that in here. Well, it's not just 1 Samuel 2 that's in this song. The Magnificat is full of scriptural references and allusions and quotes and themes from all over the Psalms. Let me just show you a few. We're going to project the verses right there. Look along in your Bibles. My soul magnifies the Lord. You should be thinking Psalm 34, 3. Oh, magnify the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Well, think Psalm 35, 9. My soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. Right? Joy and salvation. Same themes. He who is mighty, verse 49. You should be thinking Psalm 24, 8. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Holy is his name, verse 49. Think Psalm 111, verse 9. Holy and awesome is his name. Verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. You should be thinking Psalm 103, 17. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting 
on those who fear him. One more for now. Verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Arm scattered. Think Psalm 89.10. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The Magnificat is, is just wonderfully saturated with Bible. Now, if you've been here the past few weeks, uh, I think I've made this very clear. I've repeated it again this morning, but just in case you've been daydreaming this entire time and you're just tuning in right now, let me reiterate, Mary is not to be worshipped, not to be venerated, not to be prayed to. She is not our co-redemptrix. She is not the mediatrix. She is not sinless. She is not immaculately, immaculately conceived. Right? All of that is completely unbiblical. And maybe the Magnificat itself contains the greatest evidence of that. How Mary herself refers to God as God my Savior. Look at verse 47. She acknowledges that she too is a sinner in need of a Savior just like any of us. But with that said, with all that said, what an amazing and faithful and godly young woman she is. Like you cannot read this and come to any other conclusion except that Mary really knows her scriptures. Because it's not like Elizabeth says what she's going to, you know, she says, and then Mary hears it. And Mary says, all right, Elizabeth, that's, that's really good. Let me go home. I'll come back in a few weeks with my response. No, this is, as, as far as we can tell from this text, something that is completely spontaneous. And you might have noticed this when I was referencing the Old Testament connections. Mary's not really quoting the Old Testament as much as she is just kind of paraphrasing and picking up on ideas and themes and motifs from the Old Testament. And so this is not just like memory verse recitation rapid fire as much as it is just the natural overflow of her heart. And she is just thinking and speaking and praising in biblical categories, using biblical terminologies and biblical illustrations. As her own son would later say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, what was in Mary's heart? The Bible. And so what comes out of her mouth? It's the Bible. When you've stored up the word in your heart like this, that's just what comes out when you want to give spontaneous praise and adoration to God. So friends, I think there's two applications, at least for us here. First, we, we clearly see, right, it is clearly evidenced that Mary's Bible saturation. And so naturally, the extension to that is what about us? I think this goes beyond just daily Bible reading. Although I think it obviously includes daily Bible reading. And I think it goes beyond even scripture memory. Although, of course, it includes scripture memory. Like you should read your Bible every day. And you should set aside specific time to memorize scripture. But I think Mary's example here just pushes us to a lot more than even that. Like we're referring here to like this wholesale renewing of the mind, right? Romans chapter 12. So that the very way in which you think becomes more and more Bible saturated. 
So that the Bible isn't just like a part of your life that you can compartmentalize or like a knowledge bank that you can draw from whenever you're talking about the Bible or when you're listening to a sermon. But it's something that permeates each and every single one of your thoughts. So when you're at work and some tough situation comes up, you just naturally think in biblical categories. Or someone asks you for your opinion on on, on such and such, like, like a secular issue, whatever it might be, but biblical phrases and themes and expressions just naturally come out of you because that's just how your brain is wired. Or someone asks you for your counsel on this or that issue, and biblical examples and biblical wisdom and biblical illustrations just naturally come out of your mouth. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, uh, he once wrote this about John Bunyan. Prick him anywhere, his blood is bibbling. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved, end quote. And I commend Bunyan to you, and I commend Spurgeon to you, and I commend Mary to you. Their souls are just full of the word of God, that the very essence of Bible just flows out of them. So brothers and sisters, my exhortation to you is to seek to renew your minds in the scriptures, to study and know and love the word of God so deeply that you too might be this kind of Bible-saturated, that you would bleed Bible, that when you speak, when you praise God, when you naturally react to seeing God's grace at work, Bible might just spontaneously flow out of your heart. Second application here is for the parents in the room, uh, the future parents in the room. Uh, you know who you are. Uh, one thing that I think we can easily forget in reading this, because it's such beautiful and deep and scriptural stuff, is that Mary's just a teenager. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about her betrothal and kind of the, the, the culture of marriage back then. She is most likely a very young teenager And so it's not like she went off to seminary. She hasn't been studying the Bible on her own for decades and decades. Presumably she's never lived outside of her parents' home. So we don't know anything about Mary's parents. We don't know anything about her home life. We don't know anything about her family background. But I think it's safe to assume that the reason that she is so well-versed in the scriptures is simply because that's how she was raised. And so Mary's Magnificat... It's a powerful testimony to her parents' faithful teaching. It's a testimony to their obedience to Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall teach these words diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you rise and when you lie down. It reminds us of what Paul says about Timothy. How from childhood, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So parents, how are we doing with that? Does this 
or at least something comparable, describe your family life? Will others be able to say about your children when they're older and out of the home, ah, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings? Now perhaps you say, well, for years and years, we've never really read the Bible as a family. My children are getting old, and we've never really done family worship. Well, friend, if the Lord has brought you to conviction today, the good news is that today, January 2nd, 2022, is a great day to start. Fathers, confess to your families that you have failed them in this. Seek their forgiveness and start today. You will be pleasantly surprised at how God can restore the years that the locust has eaten. Mary's example, and what we can infer about Mary's parents' example, may they both serve us to pursue God's word earnestly, both as individuals and as families. So again, we're going to get into the details of Mary's Magnificat, like what's actually going on in the verses next week. But as we wrap up this morning, let me point out one more thing about this section as a whole. Everything from the meeting to Mary's response to the meeting, this whole section, right? Elizabeth, John, Mary, it's marked by this palpable, undeniable joy because of the coming of the Messiah. Elizabeth, she proclaims with a loud cry the blessedness of Mary. And the baby in her womb, John the Baptist, leaps for joy. And Mary, look at how she starts off the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices. Joy in God my Savior. Joy, 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 right? Uh, Elizabeth, joy. John, joy. Mary, joy. And it's not just like regular joy, if such a thing exists. The word that Elizabeth uses in verse 44, and the same word that Mary again uses in verse 46, it's a word that means exultation or like exceeding joy, if you look it up in a Bible dictionary. It's not the usual word for joy and gladness, Cairo. It's a different word, a one that's often used in conjunction with Cairo to express an even greater level of joy. And so you'll see it translated, uh, Matthew chapter 5, rejoice and be glad. Right? That's the pairing of those two words. Or, or Revelation 19, rejoice and exult. Luke 1, 14, joy and gladness. Right? So it's that word, that, that, that heightened word for joy, that exultation, that exceeding joy. That's the word that characterizes and colors this entire section. And that's the same exact word that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 1 to describe what should be going on in the heart of every single believer. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. That's the word. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So my question to every single person in this room is how is your joy? 
Today is January 2nd. Christmas season is uh, long over. It's been over since December 26th because the presents are all opened and the wrapping paper's all been thrown out and uh, the Christmas candy and the ornaments are like 80% off at Dwayne Reed. Uh, There's bare trees on every curb. The, The manger scenes are put away. The lights have been taken down. And so for the world around us, Like any Christmas spirit or or Christmas joy or holiday cheer or uh, joy to the fishes in the deep blue sea, whatever it is, right? All of that is now history. But for the believer, brothers and sisters, for those who are in Christ, the joy of the incarnation is not a seasonal thing. It should continue to be, 1 Peter chapter 1, a joy that is inexpressible, that carries throughout the year. Whether the world around us is decorating trees and putting up ornaments and exchanging presents or not. Because the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us, it's, just not, it's not just a, a heartwarming story that makes us feel good every December. The incarnation, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, that's God's plan to save a wretched, hell-bound people like us. And that should produce a joy inexpressible, whether it's December or January or June or September. Sinners like us, uh, without God, without hope in this world, bound in shackles by our sin, our sinfulness, No way of absolving our guilt. No way of obtaining true righteousness. No way of being right in the eyes of a holy God. And yet God in love gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He reconciled sinners like us to himself that he might be our God and we might be his people forever and ever and ever. That's where this joy inexpressible and filled with glory comes from. For Elizabeth, for John, for Mary, for me, and for you. Brothers and sisters, does this describe us? Can we put ourselves with Elizabeth and John and Mary? Can we share in their joy in Christ and what he came to do for God's people? Perhaps you came to church this morning and you don't know about this joy. Maybe you've tried everything the world has to offer in your search for something lasting, something greater. And you've come up empty and empty over and over again. The world and its trinkets, they've disappointed you. They've let you down time and time again. Well, friend, I tell you, the joy of being right with God, having your sins forgiven, being made righteous in his sight, being eternally united to a holy Christ, that's the only source of true joy. That was, however fundamental in their understanding, that was Elizabeth's joy and John's joy and Mary's joy. And that's the joy of every single child of God in this room. And that can be your joy as well. This very day, if you would repent and believe the gospel that Christ died for sinners like you. And so I plead with you this day to come to Christ that you too might be saved, right? that you too might see and understand and experience this joy inexpressible.
Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would not be a people who are quick to move on from the incarnation after Christmas. Uh, Father, please keep us in this text uh, for many weeks to come that we might see the glory of the birth and death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for any in this room who do not yet know you, that do not know this joy inexpressible, that today indeed would be the day of their salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.